What a joy it is to sing praises to our exalted King, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God's providence, um, your pastor didn't know my favorite Christian hymn is in Can It Be? So no surprise that that's what we sang this morning. I think that's the most profound question we can all ask. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's just amazing, amazing love. Well, this morning we want to look into how we can prepare Roman Catholics for eternity. There's much confusion today among Christians about Roman Catholicism, whether or not it represents true biblical Christianity, and that's because of what we saw last night, that many evangelical leaders are signing unity accords daring to say that Christians share a common faith in the gospel. The gospel has been compromised so much that many Christians today cannot discern the true gospel from a false gospel. Many Christians do not know if the Catholic Church represents a huge mission field or if it represents a Christian denomination made up of brothers and sisters in Christ. So hopefully this morning... Any confusion will be laid aside, and this conference will remove any doubt that we have that it represents a huge mission field. We need to rescue those who are perishing and bring glory to the true Christ, who is gloriously revealed in Scripture. So that's what we want to do this morning, is look through the lens of Scripture, which is our supreme authority in knowing truth from error. And that's how we can see that the Roman Catholic Church is an apostate form of Christianity. As we witness to Roman Catholics, we need to recognize several things. Number one, that religious pride is one of the greatest tools that Satan uses to blind the minds of unbelievers. Religious indoctrination is another powerful tool. I can tell you from the time I could think, I was indoctrinated with the error that the Roman Catholic Church represents the one true church. And if you remain faithful to the church, the church will eventually get you to heaven. It's a great obstacle to overcome. But we know from 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. And the only way the blindness can be removed is by the sovereign grace of God. Oftentimes, I think witnessing to a Catholic is like peeling an onion. You have to peel back one layer of indoctrination at a time, using the Word of God as a knife to peel back that indoctrination. And so this morning, I want to give you seven layers of indoctrination that we need to peel back using the Word of God. And keep in mind that Catholics are dead in their sin. The Bible tells us that the natural man cannot discern the things of God because they're spiritually appraised. And so before they can understand the glorious gospel of grace, we need to lovingly confront them in their air and peel back those layers of indoctrination. It's no wonder the apostle Peter asked the Lord Jesus, who then can be saved if everyone's dead in their sin and blinded by the devil? You know the Lord's response with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So we need to be praying as we witness to Catholics that 
God would open their eyes, open their hearts as he did Lydia's heart to receive the gospel with gladness and joy. So what are the objectives this morning? We want to examine official Roman Catholic teaching through the lens of Scripture. And this is important. We don't want to look at an individual's faith because you can find Catholics that believe all sorts of bizarre things. We want to look to the supreme authority in the Catholic Church, and that is really their catechism. That's what the Catholic Church teaches as an authority that even sits above Scripture in actual practice. We need to understand that this topic can be emotional. It can also be divisive, but it's of utmost importance. We need to develop discernment between truth and error. So many people believe the gospel is gray today because of the compromise, but it's black and white, and it must remain that way. We need to recognize the urgent need to speak the truth and love to those who may be perishing. Just this morning over breakfast, I had an opportunity to witness to a Roman Catholic. And I asked him, where will you spend eternity when you take your last breath? And he kind of jokingly said, well, I'm not thinking about that. I hope I have a few more years to live before I have to consider that. And I said, well, just um, last month, a bunch of Israeli children went out to enjoy a concert. They didn't know that their soul would be required that very night. God doesn't promise anyone tomorrow. We need to be ready to meet our Creator. And He will either be a sin-avenging judge or a merciful Savior. But one day we will stand before Him. And it's important that we prepare for eternity now. So how would you define the Roman Catholic Church? The Catholic Church believes it's the one true church founded by Christ. Do you believe it's a Christian denomination or an apostate church that needs to be evangelized? I'm going to present the evidence to you this morning and you be the jury. You determine for yourself based on the evidence what you believe the Catholic Church is today. And up front, I'd just like to share, as I did last night, there are born-again Christians in the Catholic Church, but the Spirit of God has not removed them from the false church yet. And that's why the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. Any born-again Christian in the Catholic Church must be discipled. They need to know everything Christ has taught and that God seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. They must come out and not participate in their sins any longer. Well, when you look at Christianity, there's been two streams running side by side for 2,000 years. You have the apostolic church, and it's made up of born-again Christians who have been purified by the blood of Jesus, sealed by the Spirit of God, and sanctified by the Word of God. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the apostolic church. That's the promise of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. So we have seen an uninterrupted chain or river of true Christianity running side by side by the apostate church that also formed in the first century. It's made up of those who departed from the faith to follow doctrines of demons. They left the apostolic church because... They were never part of it. 
And that's what John writes in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were never part of us. Had they been part of us, they would have remained with us. Another way John could have said that, they went out from us because they were never born again of the Spirit of God. Had they been born again, they would have remained with us. But they were false Christians. They were professors of Christ, but not possessors of Christ. And so they departed from the true church to follow doctrines of demons. So apostasy is a departure from the church, from the Lord Jesus Christ, and also from the gospel of grace. Christ has only one church, which he purchased with his own blood, as we see in Acts 20, 28. We read in Ephesians 5, 24, that the church is subject to Christ and not to the many creeds and false teachings of men. The church of Christ contains only those who are saved. Contains only those who are in Christ. And please understand that this message is not about Catholicism versus Protestantism. It's a determination as to what is truth. We're going to look through the lens of Scripture to find out what is the true church and what is any false church. And keep in mind, there are Protestant churches and denominations that are apostate as well. So we're not contrasting Protestants versus Catholics, but the Word of God versus the Catholic Church. When you look at Catholicism's departure from the faith of the apostles, it's taken time over the last 1,600 years. In 431, you see baptismal regeneration. The Catholic Church teaches the water is efficacious. When it hits the forehead of the infant, that infant is regenerated. By the way, this line of um, Roman Catholic traditions are found in our red track, Roman Catholicism, Scripture versus Tradition. 500 AD, you see the sacrifice of the Mass, and that just simply means that even today the Catholic Church believes the priest has the power to call Jesus back down from heaven and continue the sacrifice of the cross on an altar. In 1190, you had the practice of indulgences, which is the remission of temporal punishment for sin. In 1215, you have the miracle of transubstantiation, where the priest is said to have the power to change the inner substance of the wafer into the physical body and blood of Christ. Purgatory was established in 438 as an infallible dogma. It was actually a teaching practice since 596. Pope Gregory I was the one that introduced purgatory to the Catholic Church. But the difference between a teaching doctrine and an infallible dogma, once it's pronounced as an infallible dogma, it can never change. But teaching doctrines can change, and a good example of that is limbo. The Catholic Church taught the doctrine of limbo, that a child that dies before receiving water baptism goes to this place called limbo. Well, they've now discontinued that because it was only a teaching doctrine. At the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church elevated tradition to be equal with the authority of God's word. Then in 1854, the Roman Catholic Church pronounced that Mary was conceived without sin. 
And that wasn't the end of that lie. They also said that she lived a sinless life. 1870, papal infallibility was pronounced as an infallible dogma. And then Catholics began asking questions. Well, if Mary never sinned, and sin is what causes death, where's Mary? So one lie led to another lie, and they pronounced an infallible dogma that Mary's body was miraculously assumed into heaven. These are the departures of the Roman Catholic religion from the truth of God's word. And you can see apostasy doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual departing from the faith of the apostles. So Catholics embrace some doctrines of the Bible. And you see on the screen, there's two circles. And there is a little bit of an overlap. You see the Bible in one of the circles and Roman Catholic traditions in the other. And so we have a common area where we believe some of the principles of the Christian faith. And by that, Roman Catholics believe as we do, that Jesus Christ is the second person of the triune God, that he was conceived by, in a virgin, that he was born and lived a sinless life, obeying the law perfectly. He died on Calvary's cross, and three days later he rose from the dead, and he will come back to judge the living and the dead. And that's the common truth that we share with Roman Catholics. But outside of the Bible, you have Roman Catholic traditions. And as you have seen already, those nullify and oppose the truth of the gospel and the word of God. We know that the gospel is according to scripture alone. That's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4. But many Roman Catholic traditions nullify and oppose the word of God. And that shouldn't surprise us because the apostate Jews did the same thing in Mark 7. Jesus said to them, you have nullified the very word of God with your traditions. So history repeats itself in the Roman Catholic Church. So many evangelicals today look at this thin veneer of truth that surrounds the false and fatal gospel of the Catholic Church, and that's the common truths that we share. But it's a very thin veneer of truth. And from afar, it looks like a Christian denomination until you look under the veneer and you see a gospel that sends people down the broad road to destruction. So let's look then at seven differences that are very consequential between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity. There are seven, and we'll look at these briefly and then go into them more in depth. We belong to a different church. We submit to a different authority. We worship and trust a different Jesus. We believe a different gospel. We have a different view of Mary. We have a different view of sin, which you need to know as you witness to Roman Catholics. Also, we have a different path to eternity. So these seven major differences ultimately end in a different path to eternity. So let's contrast the Lord's Church with the Roman Catholic Church. The Lord's church has one head. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholic church has two heads. 
Yes, they believe Jesus is one of the heads, but they also have the Roman Catholic Pope. The Lord's Church can only be entered by spirit baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized by one spirit into one body. But to enter the Catholic Church, you enter through water baptism. That makes you a Roman Catholic. In the Lord's Church, every member is born again of the Spirit of God, based on John 3. In the Roman Catholic Church, every member is deceived. The Lord's Church, every member has the assurance of eternal life. That's the promise of the gospel. But in the Catholic Church, they have no assurance. Roman Catholics only have conditional life. They don't know where they're going to spend eternity. That's why when you ask them, they'll say, I hope it's heaven. The Lord's Church has two ordinances. The Lord's Supper and Baptism. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. The Lord's Church contends earnestly for the faith. The Catholic Church has departed from the faith. The Lord's Church proclaims the gospel, and the Catholic Church distorts the gospel. What a contrast between these two churches. The first difference between the Roman Catholic faith and biblical faith is vitally important to understand because Roman Catholics are convinced they belong to the one true church and they call us the Johnny-come-latelys. They say our church only started 500 years ago. But what is the church? It's not this building. The church is the body of Christ. We trace our roots and our origin back 2,000 years. That's when the body of Christ was first formed. And the Lord has been adding to that number daily for the last 2,000 years. The one true church is made up of those who have been born again. Jesus is the only builder of his church. He promised that in Matthew 16, 18. Its members are baptized by the Spirit. And don't miss this, our names are enrolled in heaven. The Catholic Church cannot say that. And that's based on Hebrews 12.23. Roman Catholics will be the first one to tell you that they may spend eternity in hell if they die in mortal sin. So their names are not enrolled in heaven. They cannot be the one true church. Listen to what the Catholic Church teaches about itself in paragraph 846 of the Catechism. Basing itself on Scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the Catholic Church is necessary for salvation, which men enter through baptism as through a door. No one can be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded and necessary by God through Christ, would refuse to enter it or remain in it. And I don't know about you, Steve, but when I left the Catholic Church, there was this great guilt because of what I was indoctrinated with. If I leave the Catholic Church, it tells me I have no hope of salvation. And so this is a great obstacle that we need to communicate the truth to Roman Catholics about. Jesus Christ is the only door that men must enter in order to be saved. 
and then you're part of the Lord's church. But don't miss this. The Catholic church, according to its teaching, is necessary for salvation. Can you see the power of religious indoctrination here? It keeps Catholics in religious bondage. This is why they defend their church instead of defending the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read any of our newsletters, you can see all the hate mail we get from Catholics who are so proud of their religion. Oftentimes I say, if only you were as loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ as you are to your church, then it might be easier for you to see the truth. Only the truth of God's word can set them free. No church is necessary for salvation, and no one can be saved by water baptism. Members of our Lord's church are saved by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the only door in which you must enter in order to be saved. We need to be beware of faulty foundations. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church has not been completed since the Catholics believe their bishops, bishops are successors of the apostles. So every time a new bishop is named, the foundation changes. But our foundation was laid 2,000 years ago. And by the way, the church is the only institution that the Lord promised to protect. Many people would point to the 4th century as the origin and the formation of the Roman Catholic Church. It was then that Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity the state religion. He ruled the church as Pontificus Maximus, which is a title that the popes now wear today. It simply means the highest priest. Constantine required all of his Roman subjects to become Christians. So pagans entered the church through the ritual of water baptism. There was no call to repentance. Pagan temples became places of church worship in the fourth century. You remember Constantine claimed to have a vision of the cross of Christ, and that's why he wanted to make Christianity the official religion. He looked out over the Roman Empire and he saw it was fragmented. And he thought Christianity could be the glue that would reunite the Roman emperor. So he merged Christianity with all these pagan traditions. It was in 381 AD that Emperor Theodosius named the newfound entity the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, Catholic meaning universal, the state religion of Rome. Many believe this was the origin of Roman Catholicism because it departed from the authority of Christ and his word and submitted to the authority of the pagan Roman king. It was during this time that many pagans came into the church, politically motivated, but religiously disinterested. In order to get ahead in Constantine's empire, you had to become a quote-unquote Christian. So the greatest heir in the church today continues to be its partnership with the world. Nothing has changed The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3, the Spirit explicitly says 
that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience and with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Don't you find it interesting that Paul named two doctrines of demons here that the Roman Catholic Church embraces today? forbidding people to marry and abstaining from certain foods. That's what we did during Lent, if you were a Catholic. We abstained from certain foods. You know, when you talk to Roman Catholics and they're convinced that their church is the one true church, one thing that they never consider is apostasy. Most Catholics don't even know what the word means. Yes, we both trace our roots back to the first century. Christ only established one church, but some departed from the faith to follow doctrines of demons. Rome's apostasy was complete in the 16th century. It deliberately and dogmatically departed from the faith of the apostles at the Council of Trent. Her apostasy is now documented by infallible anathemas that condemn anyone who does not believe her errant teachings. Don't you find it fascinating that the New Testament only lists two anathemas? We're going to look at one tomorrow morning, anyone who distorts the gospel. But the other one is those who do not love Christ. So Paul is elevating the love of Christ on the same level as his gospel. If you distort his gospel, you're anathema. If you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're anathema. But Rome said two's not enough. They came up with a hundred more. The council also elevated religious tradition to be equal in authority to God's word. And it was here that the bishops placed the Bible on the list of forbidden books. They would not forgive the sins of anyone who had a Bible in their possession until they returned it to the church. 24 years after Trent, a papal bull established devotion to the rosary, which guides Catholics through 53 repetitious prayers to Mary. Again, going against the Lord's exhortation in Matthew 6, don't be like the pagans who pray with many repetitious words. We know from according to Scripture that praying to anyone other than the triune God is blasphemy. We need to warn Roman Catholics. In fact, I challenge them. I tell them, I'll return to the Catholic Church if you can show me in the scriptures where one God-fearing man prays to anyone other than Almighty God. We want to get them into the scriptures. There the truth is going to set them free. But Catholics don't read their Bible. So challenge them. Well, in the midst of all this apostasy, it was not universal. The true shepherd of the church continued to protect his sheep from pagan traditions, the illegitimacy of the papacy, and the ungodly union of church and state. Remember, the Lord Jesus promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. He is the good shepherd that watches over it. He always had a remnant of born-again Christians who have been purified by the blood of Jesus, sealed by the Spirit of God, and sanctified by the truth of God's Word. 
Its members have the complete forgiveness of sins, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, the assurance of eternal life, and a relationship with the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's church will prevail until the end because the good shepherd watches over it. When you look at the Roman Catholic Church, you can once again inform Roman Catholics that none of your Catholic traditions are found in the first century church. And we need to instruct them here. We need to let them know that the book of Acts is a history book of the first century church. During the first hundred years of the church, you can see the characteristics of this church. So nowhere in the book of Acts do you find priests offering sacrifices for sins. Nowhere do you find indulgences remitting sins punishment. Nowhere do you find praying for souls in purgatory. Nowhere in the book of Acts do you find infallible men or popes. Nowhere do you find salvation dispensed piecemeal through the sacraments. Nowhere do you find rosaries, scapulars, holy water, crucifixes, or statues. And nowhere do you find the church headquartered in Rome. We must challenge Catholics to recognize and admit that their church is not the true church founded by the Lord Jesus Christ. We must challenge them. Show me where any of these traditions are found in the Bible. Well, the second layer of indoctrination that we need to peel back using the authority of God's word is that we submit to a different authority. Christians have one authority. Scripture is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and practice. Catholics have three authorities. Scripture is one. They also have their sacred tradition as well as their infallible bishops. Most people don't realize this, but everybody knows that the Catholic Church believes their pope is infallible. But what a lot of people don't know is that when the bishops speak with one voice, such as at a council, their teachings are infallible. The issue of authority continues to be the biggest practical divide between Protestants and Catholics. Catholics say both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So in actual practice, the Catholic Church denies that all three are equal because what you have is scripture and tradition on the bottom and the magisterium of the church on the top. And so it's the magisterium of the church made up of bishops that do a masterful job of twisting and distorting scripture so that it conforms to their ungodly tradition. The apostle Peter had much to say about those who twist and distort scripture. He said it would be to their own destruction. By refusing to submit to the supreme authority of scripture, the Catholic Church has wandered further and further away from the apostolic faith. In June of 2002, all the bishops of the Catholic Church came to the Dallas area 
They stayed at the Fairmont Hotel in downtown Dallas, and they were there to determine what they could do about the priestly scandal of sexual abuse. Knowing that all the bishops were gathered at the Fairmont Hotel, I went down to talk with them. And as they were coming out of the hotel, I would engage them. It was a hot August afternoon. I remember one priest was curious about what I had to say. He took off his collar. We sat down under a tree and I witnessed to him for a period of time. I remember I I witnessed to a, a woman there and she told me that her son was molested by a Roman Catholic priest and then a few years later he committed suicide. I said, as I shared the gospel with her, I said, there is a high priest that you need to trust because he's the only one that will never abuse you or never forsake you. And I gave her great compassion for her son committing suicide. But I said, there is a high priest that you need to turn to, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the door by which you must enter. And she she thanked me. I spent 15, 20 minutes with her. She said, as much as I like what you have shared with me, I was born a Catholic and I'm going to die a Catholic. I said, no, no, not according to the Bible. You were born a sinner and you're going to die a sinner unless you repent and believe the gospel. And I walked away just completely amazed at the power of religious indoctrination. Here's a mother who lost her son to the Roman Catholic religion, but she was unwilling to leave it. That's the power of religious indoctrination. I shared the gospel with another Roman Catholic bishop that afternoon, and he said, you know what? I appreciate everything you've shared with me, but you have no right to interpret the scriptures on your own. You must come back to Holy Mother, the church, because the bishops are the only interpreters of God's word. When you look at the rejection of divine authority, it's often hidden below the surface. When the traditions and teachings of men supplant God's word as the supreme authority for truth, the distortion and perversion of the gospel is often like an iceberg. It's hidden below the surface of the water. Can I give you an example of this? When you witness to Roman Catholics, they will tell you that they are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's not until you begin probing and asking questions that you can see the distortion of their gospel that they hold to that is hidden below the surface of the water. When you press them, you will find out they're trusting grace plus merit, faith plus works, Christ plus other mediators. You know, I was um, witnessing to, I don't know if any of you follow golf, but there was um, a woman who found out about our ministry through a mutual friend, Rose Litsky, wife of Bruce Litsky, professional golfer, and she, she had her 
Catholic children at a Christian school in Dallas-Fort Worth area, Trinity Christian Academy. And they were 11 and 13 years old. They came home one day and said, Mom, all the kids at school are telling us that we have no hope of going to heaven because we're Catholic. And she was very distraught, and so were her children. And so through a mutual friend, she called us and asked to meet with us. So my wife and I went over with an open Bible. We sat down, and she asked us why the kids at school would say that. And we shared with them it's because the Catholics have a different gospel. And for three hours, we showed the contrast between the true gospel and the false gospel of Rome. At the end of these three hours of just pouring through the scriptures, she said, how can I have the same joy and the same peace that you and your wife have? I thought, wow, what an interesting question. I said, the only way you can have the same joy and peace we have is to know where you will spend eternity. And she said, well, what do I need to do? So I took her to Mark 1.15, the first command of our Lord Jesus. You need to repent and believe the gospel. And I took her to Romans 10.9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And I said, look at verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. She bowed her head and said, Jesus, save me. Praise the Lord. And then she said, but what am I going to do? I've just been named fundraiser at All Saints Catholic Church. <laughs> I said, I've got to go and tell the priest I can no longer be a member. And my son is an altar boy. I have to tell the priest he's no longer going to serve mass. She said, will you come with me when I meet with the priest? I said, not only will I come, but I was very well aware that the seed of God's word had been planted. And I didn't want the devil to come along and snatch it away when she met one-on-one -on -one with a priest. And so we made an appointment with a priest. We walked in. I shook his hand. I said, I got right to the point. Can you share with Rose how she has any hope of going to heaven? And he listed all the requirements the Catholic Church teaches and I saw a Bible on his desk and I said, can you open to the book of Romans? I'd like to ask you to read a few passages. And he did. I said, how are you going to reconcile what the word of God has said with what you just told Rose about her salvation? Well, now he knew why I was there. <laughs> he said, this meeting is over. I said, no, there's nothing more important than settling this woman's eternal destiny. And so for the next 15 minutes, he tried to reconcile the word of God with the Catholic teachings. Each time he did, I presented another scripture that exposed his error. And this priest was getting so and so frustrated. You could almost see steam rising from his collar. Finally, he shouted at me, he said, you have no authority to interpret the word of God, neither do I. We rely on the bishops of our church. They are the only valid interpreters of God's word. He said, this meeting is over. So we walked out of his office. I opened my Bible to 2 Corinthians 4, 2. I said, look, Rose, Paul presents the truth plainly to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The epistles were written to the saints of the church, not to the bishops of the church to interpret it for us. She said, oh, Mike, I know I could never go back to this church. 
Here was a priest with a collar on. He couldn't even explain how to get to heaven. You know what Rose did when she got home? She put together 17 three-ring binders with all the scriptures that we had shared with her. She sent it out to her Catholic family members. See, that's the sign of true conversion. What's the first thing you want to do when the Lord saves you? You want to tell everyone else, especially your family members, so that they too can get on the narrow road that leads to life. Well, I had the opportunity of ministering in the Philippines for two weeks. That country is made up of over 90% Roman Catholics. I don't know if you're aware, but every year during Holy Week, Filipino men come forward to be scourged and beaten, nailed to a cross, and they're hung up there for a period of time to expiate their own sins. They don't leave them up there to die, only to suffer for the purpose of expiating their sins. What did Paul say in Colossians 2.8? See to it that no one takes you captive through empty deception according to the traditions of men. What a brutal tradition of the Roman Catholic Church in the Philippines. And yet these poor Filipino men don't know the truth. This is what the Catholic Church teaches. Each Catholics must expiate their own sin. So we need to be ready when Roman Catholics say, well, what about the traditions in the New Testament that we are to hold to? Well, let's look at them. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul writes, Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Look at the verb tense. The traditions have already been taught. And what was the source of the traditions? The apostles. Yes, we are to hold to apostolic traditions of the first century. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Once again, look at the verb tense and look at the source. Apostolic traditions that have already been handed down. And then 1 Corinthians 11.2. Hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Verb tense is always in the past. You saw all the traditions I put on the screen. They were after the first century. Jude wrote his epistle for us to earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The faith that we are to contend for was signed, sealed, and delivered in the first century. Anything added to that after the first century, we are to contend against. Paul is clearly referring to apostolic traditions that were already delivered or taught or received. No church has the right to formulate new traditions or doctrines that are contrary to the teaching of Scripture. So when you look at Christian authority, it is Scripture that reigns supreme over the traditions of men and man's teaching. There is no higher authority than Almighty God and His Word. I think Catholics would agree with you on that. Ask Him, what is the 
greatest authority in the world, Almighty God. And he has revealed himself through his inspired, infallible, inerrant word. So the Bible must be our supreme authority for truth. I think a great scripture to take Catholics to is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Over 500 times, thus saith the Lord, appears in the scriptures. The word reproof means to expose error. So the authority of scripture is used to expose the error of any false religion. And once the error has been reproved, then you use the scriptures to correct the error and ultimately for training everyone in righteousness. Most important question of all is will we test the uninspired words of men with the inspired word of God? It really all boils down to that. Every man's teaching should come under the scrutiny of God's inspired word. With all the lies and deception from the media, from the government, from science and healthcare, we are thankful to have such a source for truth that will never mislead us and never deceive us. We have the infallible word of God. Scripture is supreme over all men and over all traditions of men. I think the great verse that we can share with Catholics is Acts 17, 11, to show that Scripture has authority over all of men's teachings. What's happening in Acts 17, 11? The Apostle Paul is teaching in the synagogues of Berea. And as he's teaching, he notices that his listeners are searching the scriptures every day to find out if the Apostle Paul was teaching the truth. They were testing the teaching of an apostle with the authority of scripture. This is a great principle. Paul didn't get upset. He didn't say, don't you know I'm an apostle? Don't you know I'm going to write half the New Testament? No, this is a good principle. He commended them. They were more noble and those in the church of Thessalonica. So this is a good principle. No matter who's teaching, their teaching must come under the scrutiny of Scripture. Whenever Scripture is not the supreme authority, Christ will be dishonored, his gospel will be distorted, faith will be misplaced, the church will be ineffective, and men will steal glory from God. Don't miss that. Whenever scripture is not the supreme authority, Christ will be dishonored, his gospel will be distorted, faith will be misplaced. Catholics put their faith in their religion, not in Christ. The church will be ineffective and men will steal glory from God. Scripture also exposes the error and bondage of religious tradition we looked at Colossians 2.8, Mark 7.13, Jesus rebuked the apostate Jews for elevating their tradition above the word of God. He said, you are nullifying the very word of God for the sake of your tradition. 
Scripture also proved that Peter was not infallible. Even though the Catholic Church declares that all popes are infallible, in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, Paul had to confront Peter to his face because he was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And Peter did not submit to another man, but he submitted to the authority of Scripture. So these are great verses to take Roman Catholics to. We need to beware of the Catholic rebuttal. The Catholic Church says it gave us the canon. If you accept the Bible as the inspired word of God, you can do so only because the Catholic Church says it is. This is from the Bible as a Catholic book, page four. And then from the faith of millions, we read the only authority which non-Catholics have for the inspiration of scripture is the authority of the Catholic Church. Well, when Catholics tell me this, I say, well, great, why don't you read the Bible? If it's your book, why don't you read it? Only then the truth will set you free from religious deception, from religious indoctrination. Catholics say their church is the authority and we would not have the Bible if the Catholic Church had not given us the canon. Well, we know the Roman Catholic Church was not around when the canon of the Old Testament was established. That should be proof enough, right? What about the New Testament? Challenge them to go to the Bible. The early Christians affirmed the canon based on its authority and inspiration. Remember, thus saith the Lord appears 500 times in Scripture. No other religious book makes that claim. The canon was established based on the affirmation by Christ and the apostles. It was affirmed because of its acceptance by the first century church. We know the letters after they were written, they were circulated among all the churches. It's also based on doctrinal consistency with the teachings of Christ, the apostles and the oracles of God. We see that in Romans 3.2. So Paul's letters were affirmed by Peter. Peter referred to the Apostle Paul's writing as scripture. Paul's letters were affirmed by Luke's gospel. The inspired writings were received, read, and circulated by the first century church. The 27 inspired books were inspired as soon as they were penned not because a council said they were inspired. By the way, early Christians died, were martyred and tortured because they believed the scriptures were the inspired word of God. So who is the rock in Matthew 16, 18? This is the most important verse in Roman Catholicism. The church stands or falls on this verse. And that's because Rome declares Peter is the rock. You know what's happening in this passage. Jesus just asked the most important question that we all need to consider. Who do men say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, what did Peter just do? He made a profession of faith as to who Jesus is. Upon this confession of faith, 
I will build my church because no one can enter the church unless they make the same profession that Peter made. Peter knew that Jesus was the rock. His first epistle, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Paul said the rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4. The psalmist said God was their rock, Psalm 78.35. And who is a rock except our God, Psalm 18.31. So once again, we can turn to Scripture for every answer we need to give to Roman Catholics who make these false assertions. I want to share with you, by now you know I love to present contrast, providing the truth right alongside what is false. I want to share with you statements by two men that Catholics call Pope. They believe the first Pope was the Apostle Peter, and it was Peter who refused the adoration of men in Acts chapter 10, verse 26. Remember when people fell down to worship him? He said, stand up and worship God alone. But Pope Francis welcomes the adoration of men. Peter warned of false teachers who would introduce destructive heresies and malign the way of truth, his second epistle, chapter 2. Pope Francis is a false teacher who perverts the gospel and rejects the truth of God's word. And again, I'm not saying this other than under the authority of God's word. We compare his gospel with the true gospel. This makes him a false teacher. The apostle Peter taught salvation by faith in Christ alone. There is no other name given among men by which we are to be saved. Christ alone. But Pope Francis teaches salvation apart from Christ. I don't know if you're aware of this. But in paragraph 841 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says that Muslims are part of God's plan of salvation. Muslims who deny the deity of Christ, Muslims who deny that Jesus went to the cross, they are part of God's plan of salvation according to Rome. But you and I who believe in the sufficiency and the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are condemned over 100 times. This is how wicked and perverse the Roman Catholic religion is. By the way, I did a, a prophetic message showing the 10 common bonds between Roman Catholicism and Islam. It is amazing how many bonds unite these two religions. And it's available on our website under articles. But it's truly amazing that Roman Catholicism has more in common with Islam than it does with biblical Christianity. The Apostle Peter was fallible, as we see in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. Pope Francis believes he is infallible. But that's not all. The Apostle Peter was an elder who submitted to Jesus as the head of the church Pope Francis believes he is the supreme head and ruler of the entire church. Paragraph 882. The Apostle Peter taught we are born again through the living, abiding word of God. 1 Peter 1.23. 
Pope Francis teaches we are regenerated through the sacrament of water baptism. The Apostle Peter taught eternal life is a gift and secured by the power of God. Pope Francis teaches conditional life is gained by sacraments and lost by mortal sin. What a contrast for Catholics to consider. May God help them believe the inspired word of Peter rather than the uninspired words of Pope Francis. Roman Catholic apologists are always calling me saying, Mike, if you will only read the early church fathers, you will find that the second and third century church was Roman Catholic. And my response is always the same. How do I know that the early church fathers you want me to believe are not the very men the Apostle Paul warned us about when he spoke before the Ephesian elders at the end of his earthly ministry? In Acts 20, verses 29 to 31, Paul said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. In other words, from the elder board, men will arise for the purpose of drawing away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. We must always test the uninspired words of men with the inspired word of God. And by the way, when you read the early church fathers, you're going to find church fathers on both sides of every issue. So you really haven't gained anything. We need to point people to the scriptures. That's the inspired word of God that you can trust. My first trip to Israel, I was taking a four-week course at the Institute of the Holy Lands, and we went out into the Negev Desert, and Charlie Dyer, our instructor, was laying on his belly taking a picture of a withered bush in the middle of the desert. I said, Charlie, what's the significance of that bush? He said, well, turn to Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. But look at the contrast. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. What a contrast. What a great lesson. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. His word is our God against false teaching. The third principle, we'll go through this and then we'll take a break. Most importantly, we worship and trust a different Jesus. The biblical Jesus provides forgiveness of all sins and eternal life. The Eucharistic Jesus of Rome provides only forgiveness of past sins and provides only conditional life. That's why Roman Catholics must come to the sacrifice of the Mass every week. It's to forgive the sins they committed in the previous week. The biblical Jesus provides redemption through the one sacrifice on a cross. The Eucharistic Jesus provides 
ongoing redemption by sacrifice on altars. The biblical Jesus provides a permanent right standing before God. Hebrews 10.14, by one offering, he is made perfect forever. The Eucharistic Jesus provides a continuous striving to gain God's acceptance. I can relate to this as a Catholic for 35 years. It was like being on a treadmill, always doing the best I could, but going nowhere. The biblical Jesus provides peace, security, and assurance. The Eucharistic Jesus provides uncertainty, fear, and a false hope. What a contrast. We must point Roman Catholics to the Jesus that is gloriously revealed in Scripture. If you go into a Catholic church, you're going to see Jesus depicted in one of three ways. Either a dead man still hanging on a cross, a helpless babe in the arms of his mother, or a lifeless piece of bread called the Eucharist. Look at these three depictions of Jesus, helpless to do anything for Roman Catholics. I was on a missions trip into Mexico and I saw a sight that was just made me so angry. They had a statue of Jesus in a glass coffin. And next to the glass coffin was an offering box. And in Spanish it said, for the holy burial of Jesus. These poor Mexican peasants were coming by and donating money for the burial of Jesus. Well, whenever I see someone wearing a crucifix, it's a great opportunity to share the gospel. I ask them, who's that hanging on your cross? They'll say, well, Jesus, of course. I said, no, it can't be Jesus. He's no longer on the cross. He was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven. Now he intercedes as an advocate for all those who put their trust in him. Great opportunity to share the true Christ. I want to share a quote by Richard O'Brien. This has got the official imprimatur of the Catholic Church, which means the Catholic Church holds to this and believes it to be true, and Catholics must accept this as truth. When the priest announces the words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens and brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of men. Is Christ a victim? He went to the cross willingly. He laid down his life. How dare the Catholic Church distort who Christ is, calling him a victim? But that's not all. This power the priest has is a power greater than that of saints and angels. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. As preposterous and unthinkable as this may sound, the Catholic priest is said to have the power to call Almighty God down from heaven to continue on an altar what he finished on the cross. Over 200,000 times a day throughout the world, priests believe they represent Jesus as a sacrifice on their altars. 
Our Lord endured excruciating pain and torture for sinners once for all time, for all sin. There are no more offerings for sin. Hebrews 10 totally destroys the Roman Catholic Mass. Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity. It is unconscionable that Catholics would want to continue the suffering of Christ on their altars. This is Roman Catholicism. This is why we need to rescue Roman Catholics out from this wicked system. We know the Eucharist is a false Christ by the authority of Scripture. The Bible teaches he will return to the Mount of Olives after the tribulation with power and great glory. You see a picture of the Mount of Olives on your screen. And then in Acts 3.21, listen, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. And then we see he will return in a body the same way he went to heaven. He didn't go into heaven in the form of a Eucharist. He will return in a body just like he left. He will appear a second time, according to Hebrews 9.28. He does not return every day. His second appearance is not to deal with sin. Please don't miss this. Why? Because he already dealt with sin when he was offered once to bear the sins of many. The Eucharist is Jesus being presented as a victim to deal with sin. By the authority of Scripture, we know this is a false Christ. Paragraph 1374, the Catechism says, In the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. As a Roman Catholic, I really believed I was eating Jesus. That's how powerful religious indoctrination is. Catholics arrive at this through the heretical teaching of transubstantiation. Believing this is not an option for Catholics, anyone who rejects this teaching stands condemned by the Council of Trent, Session 13, Canon 2. When the priest holds up the bread, he says, Hocus death epum corpus meum, for this is my body. An incantation that is said to turn the bread into the body of Christ. When priests say this so rapidly, the phrase begins sounding like hocus pocus, which is a phrase magicians use when they're doing a magic trick. Well, this isn't magic. This blasphemes the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus warned, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, do not believe him. How much more clear could Jesus make it? And yet every time the Catholic goes to the altar rail, the priest says, body of Christ. And Catholics say, amen. Envoy Magazine had a picture of the Eucharist on its cover. This is a Catholic periodical. It says this looks like bread, tastes like bread, and feels like bread. Is this God? And you open the magazine, and it tries to convince you that the priest has had the power to change it into Almighty God. 
Well, the question is, is worshiping a piece of bread as Jesus any different than the Israelites worshiping a golden calf as God? Both are serious sins of idolatry. I hope you can see why we need to warn Roman Catholics. The nature of deception is such that no one knows they are deceived until and unless they are confronted with the truth. Oftentimes I I ask people, have you ever been deceived in your life? Well, sure. Well, how did you know you were deceived when I found out what the truth was? Do you know if you're deceived about your eternal destiny? The only way you will know is if you're confronted by the truth of God's word. That's what saved me. I didn't know I was deceived until I opened the Bible at age 35. The truth of God hit me right between the eyes. Praise God. And you and I are truth bearers. We've been given the supreme responsibility to share the truth with those who are deceived. That's their only hope of ever coming out of deception. When you look at the sacrifice at Calvary, the Catholic Church says the sacrifice of the Mass is the same sacrifice. Well, how in the world can that be true? Calvary was offered by the sinless Son of God on a cross. The Mass is offered by sinful men on an altar. Calvary was one perfect, finished, all-sufficient sacrifice for all sin. The sacrifice of the Mass is daily sacrifices for past sins. Calvary was only for the living. The Mass is for the living and the dead. That's why when a Catholic dies, the family goes to the priest to purchase a Mass card, put the name of the loved one that died, and they pay money to the priest. He lays it on the altar, and then the Mass is offered to get this person out of purgatory. So it's offered for the dead as well. Calvary was bloody. The Mass is bloodless. Don't you find this amazing? The one element that is efficacious in purifying sin has been removed from the Mass. Calvary was unrepeatable. The sacrifice of the Mass is repeated every day. Listen to the Catechism. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice The sacrifice is truly propitiatory. You know what that means. It means the wrath of God has been satisfied. Divine justice has been appeased. The Catholic Church says God is satisfied with the sacrifice of the Mass. This is why Catholics have no assurance. They have to keep coming back week after week. But Hebrews 10 destroys the Catholic Mass because it says that Jesus died once for all sin, For all time, there are no more offerings for sin. Could the writer to Hebrews make it any more clear? Point Catholics to Hebrews 10 and ask them, how can you continue to go to the Catholic Mass? Michael, I encourage you to share this with your wife. Hebrews 10. He was immersed in the wrath of God so that divine justice could be satisfied. He bore the sins of his people so that eternal life could be offered as a gift. The gospel is objective truth and not dependent on man in any way. 
It was completed in Christ 2,000 years ago. The sinner must come to Jesus with empty hands of faith, trusting only in Christ. Well, Catholicism, by now, I think you can agree, has another Jesus. He did not finish the work of redemption. He did not satisfy divine justice. He did not provide direct access to God. He did not make believers perfect forever. He did not secure salvation. And this is why he is still on the cross. Catholics need to know and trust the true Jesus. The Apostle Paul warned us that some would come and preach another Jesus. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11.4. Some will come and preach another Jesus, another gospel, influenced by another spirit. And Paul ends that verse with, you put up with it. You bear this beautifully. Rather than contending for the true Christ and the true gospel, you bear this beautifully. And that's why so many are deceived because we're not witnessing faithfully for the Lord Jesus. Catholics believe they receive Jesus physically, frequently in the stomach. The body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ is truly, really and substantially contained in the Eucharist. But you and I receive Jesus once spiritually in the heart so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Another Jesus always produces another gospel. The Catholic Jesus only made salvation possible. Therefore, Catholics have another gospel to instruct them what they must do in order to be saved. The true Jesus has done everything necessary to save sinners completely and forever. Thus, the gospel proclaims salvation by grace. That's why I produce a gospel track entitled, You Can Never Do What Christ Has Done. You know, when you look at all the religions in the world, there's really only two faiths. Human achievement, based on what man must do, and divine accomplishment, based on everything Christ has done. Every religion in the world teaches a works righteousness salvation. Biblical Christianity teaches salvation by grace because of the all-sufficient, finished, and completed work of Christ on the cross. Catholicism is no different from all the other religions in the world trying to appease their deity by doing good works. Well, that's where we're going to end for this session, and we'll take a 15, 20-minute break, and then we'll come back and we'll look at the other four, five, six, and seven principles or layers of indoctrination So, Father, we thank you so far for what we have learned from your word. I pray that everyone here will have a greater compassion for those who are so deceived by a false and fatal gospel. And if there's anyone here this morning that is still trusting in what they must do, that they put all their trust in Christ alone. And we ask this for his glory and in the power of his name. Amen.